The first principle is this. There is no biblical methodology. Biblical theology, there is biblical doctrine, there, is, there are biblical principles related to parenting, but there is not a single biblical methodology. This is why I don't really like books about parenting. Because when you pick up a book on parenting, it is not clear sometimes on its face that really what it is, it's a book on methodology and it's the author's opinion. Um, and if it's the author's opinion, it's not a worthless book, but you have to understand that that's methodology, that is not biblical principle. And so books like that can be helpful, but they can also be pharisaical, placing burdens on you that are too difficult to bear. Okay, so I, I wanted to start off drawing a distinction between biblical principles and the application of biblical principles, what we might call methodology. Your methodology, and what I mean by methodology, it probably sounds like an accountant's talking, doesn't it? By methodology, I'm talking about things like what time do you put your kids to bed? It doesn't say in the Bible. Uh, the Bible doesn't say whether you should put your kids in public school, private school, or home school. That's not in the Bible. I promise. Maybe it is. You can tell me later if it is. Some of you are looking at me funny. Your methodology, your day-to-day -day decisions with your children are based on biblical principles and, and your theology. Your, your decisions day-to-day -day should be based on that. And you, but you must be careful in applying and in advancing how you do it to other people, which is why Q&As make me a little nervous. Because I can tell you how we did it, um, or you can hear someone else say how they did it, and that might be helpful. Please draw a distinction that is interesting, and it might, might be wisdom, but that is not biblical truth. Biblical truth is what matters. No two children are the same. No two families are the same. One size does not fit all from a methodology standpoint. One size does fit all from the standpoint of biblical truth and biblical principles. Okay? Your parenting should be processed. Uh, should not be process or methodology oriented. It should be results oriented. Should be focused on the principles orientation. You should be giving lots of thought, for example, to what kind of a young man you want to produce in your home. You should be giving a lot of thought to what kind of a young lady you want to come out of your home. And parents, to the degree it's possible, should be on the same page on that question. And those goals... For example, what kind of a man do I want to produce in my home? What kind of a woman do I want to produce in my home? Those goals should be before you all the time because that is what drives your day-to-day -day decisions, um, and it, those are what should direct and inform your day-to-day uh, -day parenting decisions. Okay? So I just use the term goal, and I want to define goal for you to set up my next few points. A goal is an outcome that you can contribute to and control to some degree. So I can say I want to run a seven-minute mile. Okay? I can control to some degree, maybe not so much anymore because I'm old, um, but to some degree I can control whether I reach that goal. I can eat right, sleep right, exercise, work out, work up to it, and maybe um, run a seven-minute mile. Okay? That's a real reasonable goal. I can also have as a goal that I want to play quarterback for the UCLA Bruins. You get it. You just laughed at me. It's never going to happen, is it? It's just not going to happen. I, I, 
Uh, it's not real, realistic. It's ridiculous. I'm not the right age. I don't have the right skill set. And there's no way to overcome those hurdles. So that's not a goal. That's a dream. That's a pipe dream. So a goal, as I'm defining it today, is something that you can affect whether you achieve or not. So before we talk about what your goals in parenting should be, I want to go to point number two and first talk about what your goal should not be. And that's number two. So the first one is there's biblical principles, there's not biblical methodology. Number two, you are not called to save your children. That is not a realistic goal of your parenting. That is a hope. That is your prayer. But that is not a realistic goal. The salvation of your children is not a realistic goal to the extent that goals are something you can accomplish. Jesus does that. Do you understand that? I know you do. And yet this is so hard for parents to grasp the practical reality of that profound truth. God loves your children more than you do. A realistic goal of parenting is that you will prepare your children for the gospel and you will present the gospel to them through what you say and how you live. You are to show your children their need for a savior. You are to tell them there is a savior and you are to tell them about the savior. You are to pray though for their salvation. Okay. Your child's sin is their own. Just like your sin is your own, my sin is my own. Proverbs 1.10, a dad talking to his son. He says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not what? Anybody know? Consent. Sin is a choice. Your goal should be to teach your children not to consent. That's what parenting is. Um, but it's their choice. At the end of the day, they make the decision whether they're going to consent and sin or not. In the same way, your child's relationship with God and their salvation is their own. Romans 10, 9, famous verse, you know it. I want to focus on the personal pronouns. If you confess with what? Your mouth. Jesus is Lord and believe in what? Your heart. That he rose from the dead, what? You will be saved. It doesn't say if your parents believe it. It doesn't say if your parents want you to believe it. And you know this from your own story, your own salvation story. Your parents didn't do it for you, right? And I know you know this. I just wanted to put this in front of us to talk about that which is not our goal. We cannot accomplish it. And I want you to be encouraged by that, by the way, that God is God and you and I are not. If your children are saved, he did that. You didn't. You understand? Okay? If your children have rejected Christ, and some of you have children that have, some of you have sweet little children that will. That's heartbreaking. I get that. But it should drive you to prayer and redoubled love for those children, not guilt. You see, people walk around taking credit for what God's done. All my children walk with God. Aren't I a good parent? That's not the measure of good parenting. Others walk around saying, I have children who have, have rejected Christ. Aren't I a terrible parent? That's as um, inappropriate 
as saying, all my children walk with Christ, I must be a good parent. That is taking credit for what God does. You don't want to take credit for what God does, and you don't want to blame God for what you haven't done. And that's what I want to spend the rest um, of these points talking about. What is it we are called to do? If we're not called to save our children, what are we called to do? Okay, so number three, you must teach your children to fear God. This is very basic. You must teach your children to fear God. This is in many places. Deuteronomy 6 is um, probably the most familiar to most of you, especially if you're parents. It says that your, your son and grandson should fear the Lord your God. Verse 4 defines that. In Deuteronomy 6, it goes on to say um, that you should love the Lord your God. The fear of God is the love of God. But the fear of God is also being afraid of God. And the difference is those who are saved... There, the fear of God is the love for God. Those who are not saved are, are and should be afraid of God. If you as parents do a study in the Bible of the term fear of God, you will learn a lot and it will impact for your own life, but it will also impact your parenting profoundly because you will understand that your job is to teach the fear of God to your children. Teach your children who God is and what he's done. Prepare them for the gospel. Prepare them to understand authority. The God of the universe, their creator, that's who you're teaching them about, and that's who you're teaching them to love. Okay? And in that, you teach them the proper response to that authority. So there is no biblical methodology. You cannot save your children. Number three, you must teach your children to fear God. Number four, you must teach your children to obey. Must teach your children to obey. And if you're in Deuteronomy 6, um, I'm going to read the first couple verses to you. This is just so profoundly clear and simple. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments. When you hear the term commandment, statutes, and judge, judgments, what do you think our response should be to that kind of thing coming from God? Obedience. And just because we're slow and thick, the, the preacher in Deuteronomy makes clear that, yeah, we are to obey. These are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them. There's the first reference to obedience. Do them. Verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God which we already read, and then it goes on to say to keep all his statutes and his commandments. There's another reference to obedience. All the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to what? Do it. That's obedience. Okay, so there is the idea that you and I are to obey the God of the universe, and we are to teach our children to obey the God, our God, the creator of the universe. Now, what does this have to do with parenting? It's, very important, it's a very important distinction. The goal of your parenting is to teach your children to obey not you, but who? God. Your hope is that they honor you. But there is a day coming when your children are not bound to obey you. And that should drive your parenting decisions now, your perspective. Teaching them to obey you is biblical, by the way. I'm not saying that 
The kids can run rampant around Grace Church and not obey anybody. But you have to understand, why was that authority delegated to you and I as parents? Well, teaching your children to obey you is necessary, but it's temporary. And that's very important um, to have before you. After a few years, they're called to honor you, not obey you. But their responsibility to obey God never ends. And by the way, I'm not talking about Christian children. I'm talking about human beings on the earth that God created who want to live a blessed life. You teach your children to obey God. Teaching them to obey you is also the means to the ultimate goal, and I think that's why the, the uh, authority was delegated by God to you and I, were to teach our children submission and obedience to their creator by teaching them how to obey you and I as parents. Okay? Teaching them to obey you is a means to teach them wise and blessed living. It's all over Scripture. Obedience and submission to authority leads to a blessed life. Your children might reject Christ, but if they come out of your home and they don't understand the need to submit and obey to authority, they will have a much harder life than if they have been taught submission and obedience to authority. Things like jail is in their future if they don't understand that. Things like rampant unemployment is in their future if they don't learn submission and obedience to, to authority. Do you get that? And it is a common grace of God that as you and I teach our children to obey authority, we aren't saving them. But we are giving them the tools to live a blessed life, and we are leading them to the God of the universe by teaching them that he is the ultimate authority and he is who they need to obey. And that's another way of saying that teaching them to obey you is a means to teach them their need for a savior. Okay? If a teenager complains that they can never do enough, never satisfy you, never live up to the standard, some of you that have had teenage children, have teenage children, might have heard that, and often that is a opportunity for conflict, or it's in the context of conflict. And what I want you to think about is that actually that is a moment of opportunity. Because you know, as we sit here without the kids around us in the midst of those hot moments, that they never can live up to that standard, can they? Think of your own salvation story. There was a, pl a point in time where you came to the place where you understood God's standard was perfection and you could never meet that standard. Therefore, you need a what? A savior. So, in the heat of the battle, when a child says, this, this isn't fair, life isn't fair, I can't live up to the standard, I can never meet your standard, I don't want to go to church anymore because they keep telling me how to live, and I, I can't live up to all of that, that is opportunity for the gospel. They get the gospel at that point. They don't even know it, maybe. But a parent who has this perspective sees that. By saying something like that, your, your child has thrown the door wide open to agree with them and to show them the Savior. And by the way, this isn't licensed to go home this start this afternoon and exasperate your children and keep moving the goalposts. Okay, the Bible actually speaks very directly in opposition to that. 
Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The discipline and instruction of the Lord is what we've seen in Deuteronomy 6. Okay, the statutes, the commandments, the judgments of the Lord, the fear of God, the love of God, and obedience. And then number five, you must teach your children wise living. Wise living. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I know you know that verse. Here's the application. Don't raise a fool. That's on you. That is on you. That's on me as a parent. Teach them to love wisdom and to love instruction and to understand and delineate wisdom from above as opposed to wisdom which is earthly and demonic. James 3. Proverbs chapters 1 through 7 is all about a father teaching his children, his sons, wisdom. He repeatedly calls his children to listen and learn, and then he teaches. I'm just going to run through this. Proverbs 2.1, my son, if you'll receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. That sounds like it's so obvious, but this father understands. I don't assume that my child knows they need to pursue wisdom. I'm going to tell them to. Proverbs 3, verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4, verse 1, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that, that you may gain understanding, for I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. This is normal parenting. There's three generations described there. My father did it to me. I'm doing it to you, and you will do it with your children. That's what we're to do, is to teach wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 10, Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Chapter 4, verse 20, My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. And it goes on and on and on. I could read several more of these in the first seven chapters of Proverbs. There's a clue here. The first seven chapters is a great manual. Some of you are looking for the silver bullet. Just give me the answers. Proverbs 1 through 7. It is an outline of how a father trains his sons or his children. And it covers the uh, topics, everything from the benefits of wisdom all the way to practical issues like handling money, um, handling unpleasant people, morality. It's all the way through the first seven chapters of Proverbs. You must teach your children wise living. Regardless of whether your child repents and confesses Jesus as Lord, the Bible promises a blessed life for those who live according to God's rules. It is a common grace. It, I don't know why God loves his creation as much as he does, but he does. And he promises that, you, that when you grasp onto his wisdom, you will live a blessed life. Will it save you? Will teaching your, having a wise child, will that save them? It will not. But 2 Timothy 3 um, talks about 
wisdom that leads to salvation. That is the goal, is to lead them to the gospel. Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. This is not a promise. It is a description of what, what life is like. This is one of many verses in Proverbs like this. So let me just review real quick points three, four, and five. You must teach your children to fear God. You must teach your children to obey God. And you must teach your children wise living. Those three, I say must because they're all the way through the Bible. They go together. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. You want wise children, you should start with teaching them about who God is. You want to teach them to obey? It starts with the fear of God and a wisdom. And why do I say that? This is all the way through the Bible again. I'm just going to give you one verse. This is the verse I think you should mark. I've said this before. I think you should write this down. And in the darkest days of parenting, when you think nothing's going well and you don't know what to do, this verse is the reminder. Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. There are those three commands all wrapped up in one verse. The fear of God leads to wisdom, and wisdom leads to obedience. Teach the fear of God. Teach your children who God is and what he's done. Teach them um, the wisdom of God, and um, I think you will see obedience follow along. Because a wise person does what? Obeys. A fool disobeys constantly. Okay? All right, number six. Number six, you must disciple your children. You must disciple your children. You must lead your children with your life and with your words. Proverbs 1 through 7, that I, I just kind of raced through, kind of. That is a how-to manual and an illustration of this purpose. There are pro passages in Proverbs 1 through 7 that might be really hard to read to your children. They're very graphic, very descriptive, very helpful. Deuteronomy 6, back to that passage. And Deuteronomy 6 really is um, the foundation of parenting. And down after the passage that I've already read through in verse 6, it talks about discipling your children. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And just to stop right there, it's on you first. You can't disciple your children unless you fear the, fear the Lord. You live according to the wisdom of God, and you obey authority. You all have smart children. I've met some of them. I haven't met all of them. I know they're smart. They will figure out the difference between what you say and what you do. And Deuteronomy 6.6 6 addresses that. And says, first, it shall be on your heart. Verse 7, it goes on to say, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, we're not, and you know the context now. I'm not going to rebuild that context. You know we're talking about the, um, the judgments, the commandments, and the statutes of God, the fear of God, the love of God. All of that is what's being talked about here. We're not talking about teaching your children your wisdom, your politics, 
your preferences, and you're not teaching them trying to produce behavior that makes you look good or makes your life more convenient. That's not what we're talking about. This is talking about teaching about God, the love of God, obedience to God, submission to God and to authority, the wisdom of God, wisdom from above, what that looks like compared to wisdom that is earthly. That's what we are to teach in the context of relationship. And that description in Deuteronomy 6, if you look at that through a certain lens, you will see that the discipleship process, the training process, there's not a time of day when you shouldn't be doing it. There's not an activity where you shouldn't be doing it. um, And there's not a context in your home where you should not be doing it. And if you didn't realize it, you are doing it. You are discipling your children. You may never say a thing to them, but they are watching you. And they are making assessments about your life in the context of what you say you are and what you teach, what comes out of your mouth as compared to how you actually live. Disciple your children. It is a relationship, relationship, relationship. And there's lots we could say. There's so much we could say about all of this. I'm going to keep going. Number seven, you must discipline your children. You must discipline your children. I would highly recommend that you read, study, and understand the first half of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 lays out um, God's process of disciplining you and I. It is godly, biblical discipline. In fact, it even says in there that if you do not discipline your child, you do not love your child. And by the way, in a weird way, your children will figure that out. Discipline your children. You are to instruct and correct your children. And here's a distinction. Hebrews 12, and the Bible talks about instruction and correction of your children. That's the definition of discipline. It is not punishment. It's a distinction I want you to think about briefly here this morning and maybe as you go from here. Punishment is defined as penalty and retribution. That authority is owned by God. Hebrews 10.29 talks about how God will punish uh, people. I don't think you will ever see that word used in Scripture in terms of the role of a parent with a child. The, the authority to punish is also delegated to government. 1 Peter 2.14 talks about the authority that government has to punish evil. It does not say in the Bible that you and I are to punish our children, and I may be drawing a distinction that in your mind might not have a difference, but I just want to address the issue. If you are disciplining, punishing in anger, that's not biblical, godly, Hebrews 12, discipline. If you are trying to hurt your child, either emotionally, mentally, or physically, to get them to change their behavior, that is not biblical discipline. Discipline comes from the same root word as discipleship. Biblical discipline is a methodical, if you will, approach to correction and to training. 
that you use the authority you've been given to discipline your child in the context of a deep, loving discipleship relationship. Hebrews 12, where it talks about how God disciplines you and I, there's seven familial references in that passage where it says, as a father does to a son. That's how God approaches us. And when we learn about God's discipline of you and I, we turn that around and use um, that same approach as we pursue Christ to be like Christ. One of the ways we're to do that is in how we discipline our children. Biblical discipline is purposeful. If you don't know why you're disciplining your child, you should not be disciplining your child. It's purposeful. It's effective. If your discipline isn't working, either you're shooting at the wrong target or you need to examine whether your discipline is biblical because biblical discipline is effective. It's measured. It's planned. It's motivated and animated by love for your child and for God, not for um, seeking your own purposes. And discipline, as it's described in Hebrews 12, is clearly explained to your children. They should understand the process they're in. And there's just, just so much we could say about discipline. It's not punishment. It's correction and it's training and it's temporary. Okay? It's temporary. I have adult children. I don't discipline my adult children. Okay? Some of you have very young children. Some of you moms say, there's not five minutes of the day where I'm not disciplining my children. There's the, there's the, uh, the spectrum. Um, you will move from feeling like you never do anything but discipline your children to the point in life where you realize my days are done disciplining my children. It's a small window. And, and, and by the way, the Bible does delegate the authority to use the rod. And that's, that's mentioned in Hebrews 12. Pain, the use of pain. But remember, pain is not for the purpose of punishment. Pain is for the purpose of what? Correction and training. Very, very important. You know, and biblical discipline results in, when I say biblical discipline, what I'm saying is discipline as God has designed it in the context of a loving discipleship relationship. Hebrews 12, verses 11 through 14 says it results in peace, righteousness, strength, and straight paths. Is there a better description of what you want for your children? Peace, righteousness, strength, and straight paths. Discipline is grounded in love and deep relationship. And for those of you that are dealing with a rebellious child, Hebrews 12 makes a strong case for the, the, that your response to a rebellious child is not to double down on the pain part of um, the discipline process, but to pull your foot off the gas and maybe even hit the brake, pull over, push pause, and build relationships. Ann and I spent many years in youth ministry um, here and in another church, and it was very common for parents of teenage kids to come in and say, tell us how to fix our child, because teenagers need fixing, don't they, sometimes? And it was always a hard concept to sit down and look at, well, let's see what the Bible has to say, and the obvious conclusion was, yeah, 
We need to fix the child, but before we can do that, we need to fix the relationship with the child. Because you see, biblical discipline is effective only when it's rooted and grounded in a deep love and relationship. Okay? Number eight. Boys and girls are different. Even five years ago, when I would say this, it meant something completely different. I'm not addressing the craziness of our culture that says you can define your own sex. It's not what I'm addressing. There is no question. God created your son to be a boy, and God created your daughter to be a girl. Let's not address the the nonsense beyond that. I want to address the consequences of that, the implications of that on your parenting. Boys and girls are different. And I can't, we're not going to take the time to develop this very much. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 makes incredibly clear that there is no mistake when God gave you a boy and there's no mistake when God gave you a girl and he designed them to live on this earth with very different primary roles. Okay? Boys. Boys were designed to primarily in the context of family, in addition to all the other things your little guy is going to grow up to do, what God has called him and designed him and created him to do and to be is to be a leader, a provider, and a protector. Not exclusively. Incredibly profound implications. If you understand that what you want to produce from your home is a young man who lives in accordance with God's design, now you have an outline for how you raise your son. You prepare him to be a leader, a provider, and a protector. And that might motivate you to spend some time to understand what in the world does that mean. And when you understand what that means, then you start rolling that back. What are the skills I need to be teaching my son? So that when he leaves my home, he is prepared to be a leader, a provider, and a protector. And by the way, that's not God's design for Christian men. That's God's design for human beings. He created us. We live according to his rules. And there is no more evident assault of Satan against God than this issue, particularly in our culture, where at the very foundation of God's interaction with his creation, our culture is saying, no, you can decide if you're a girl or a boy. And that follows on the heels of, nope, men aren't, men aren't the providers. Women can be the um, primary providers. There's been an assault on God's roles for men and women from the garden. That's what happened with Satan, with Adam and Eve. And that's why I say Genesis 3, because Genesis 3 lays out Um, um, the judgment against human beings, God's creation, because Satan went right at that issue. He will ever and always go right at that issue. Raise your boys to be a leader, a provider, and a protector. On the flip side, and this is really, really controversial these days, but the Bible is true. God created Eve to complete Adam. There's a hot button, right? When he 
when he created Eve to, to create Adam, our culture says that is misogynistic or whatever other words they use to describe that perspective. You and I know when you study scripture, you understand it says in Genesis 2 that Adam was incomplete. That wasn't a design flaw. That was a designed need in God's perfect plan. In his amazing wisdom, he created a man, most men, to be incomplete, but for the woman that he created to complete him. It's an amazing picture. And so the primary role of a woman, as God designed his creation, is that a woman would be um, a wife, a mom, and a worker at home. Controversial in our culture. Evident in Scripture. Does that mean that's all she is? No. Does that mean she cannot work outside the home? No. But her primary design is to be a wife, a mom, and a worker at home. That should be what you are trying to produce in your home. As a young lady who leaves your home, she's trained in the skills, she understands the design from God, and she is prepared, should God bring her a husband, to be a wife, a mom, and the keeper of the home. There's so much we could say about that. We could spend the whole hour and a half just talking about that. That is the goal. Boys and girls are different. Not spiritually. You don't, they don't get saved differently. Um, they aren't called to a different standard. They have a different primary role. And you can teach your daughters to be other things other than a wife, a mom, and a worker at home. And I would encourage you to think about that. But their primary role, designed by God in the garden to this day, all the way till they get to heaven, till the Lord returns, is that God's design for women is different than God's design primarily for men. Okay? Number nine. We're almost done. Number nine. Parenting is a gift from God. You've heard this verse, or these verses, Psalm 127, 3 through 5. I want you to hear these verses maybe a little differently than you have before. I want you to hear that if you have children, you are a recipient of all the gifts I'm about to highlight for you. It is Christmas every day. Moms, do you feel like it's Christmas every day? You do not. I want to encourage your hearts. And this is a verse on your hardest days that you should remember. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. Every day you wake up, those children need you. They are a gift. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a part. They are the, the fruit of the womb is a reward. You are the recipient daily of a gift, of a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the uh, children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. We could spend an hour and a half on that, those verses. Just know, and I know what this sounds like to some of you, like it's foreign, but I just want to remind you in the deep depths of the battle that sometimes parenting is, it is a gift. It is called fruit it is a reward, and it's a blessing, and that's all for you. There's hard days. 
There's the attendant sadness, fear, grief, uncertainty of parenting little ones. Just remember, God calls all of that a gift to you, a reward. And any reward from God is undeserved. Your children are God's grace in your life. Understand the temporary nature of the relationship. Hold your parenting role with an open hand. Your children are on loan. And you will not get these days back, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You won't get these days back. There's an urgency and a finish line for some of this. Live accordingly, but understand those little ones are a reward. Every day is Christmas. Maybe that should have been number nine. Every day is Christmas for a parent. And number 10, and then we're going to go to your questions. Number 10, you will let your children go someday. You will let them go someday. In fact, maybe I should say you must let them go someday. Don't raise your hands, but does anybody here want that little guy, that little uh, sweet boy you've got living in your basement when they're 35? Good. I think that's a no. You all laugh at that. You start now preparing to shove them out of the nest. And I don't mean shove, I mean let them go. Um, That is the goal of parenting. You prepare for that now. You prepare them. You prepare your own heart. You prepare your marriage. The nest will empty. It, It should empty out. It must empty out. That's your goal. That's your finish line to some degree. And my challenge to you, and you, and you think this is so far off, some of you. You're like, wow, they shouldn't bring such an old guy in to talk about parenting. <laughs> um, I'm telling you, it is racing. That finish line is racing towards you. It goes very quickly. You want to sprint across that line with a smile on your face. That should be your preparation now. So the goal you should not have in your parenting is for you to save your children. You can't save your children. Your goal is to lead them to the Savior. Your goal should be um, to teach your children the fear of God, obedience to God, the wisdom of God. You want to disciple your children. You need to discipline your children. You need to parent with the goal of what your boy is going to grow up to be as a man and what your girls are going to grow up as a woman and parent accordingly. Every day is Christmas. And number 10, you want to know that you're going to let your children go someday. And the practical implication of that, and this might be hard for some of you, especially if you're parenting teenagers, is you need to learn now how to honor your children. You see, they are part of 1 Peter 2.17, where it says to honor all men. Guess what? Your children are part of that group. Your parents owe, or your children will owe you no duty of honor. They owe that duty to the Lord. What you want to do is you want to learn now how to honor your children, and maybe they will return that. That's a blessing from the Lord. Learn now to live an honorable and a respectable life so your children grow up to honor you from love rather than obligation. And there's so much we can say about adult children, and we have said, and we will say, and maybe we'll talk about it here today. But prepare now. I don't care how young your children are. 
part of parenting is looking down the road and seeing um, where, where you're heading and where all of this is going, okay? So there's some principles. We have uh, about half an hour. If there's no questions, we'll go eat more donuts and drink coffee. Any questions? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, Corey, this is so unique. I don't think anybody else deals with this. <laughs> I told you to ask questions that apply to everybody. No, no, this is very common. This is, as your children, you have a daughter, but let's just broaden it. As children approach the teenage years, it's almost stereotypical that they close in, right? That they shut down. And you're wondering, how do you draw them out? Okay, and there is... Um, a lot from Scripture, but it's basic. Um, Proverbs 1 through 7, I highly recommend you spend some time reading that. I know you have, but read it from the perspective of if I was that dad, have I had that conversation with my child? Could I have that conversation with my child? Will I have that conversation with my child? And there's a principle in Proverbs 1 through 7, and that is that the dad is walking through life with his children, and as they observe life, um, he comments on life. And by the way, when your kids become adults, you don't get to comment on life unless they ask your opinion. Really. Um, when they are young, you are mandated to introduce and give your, let's call it opinion, they'll call it your opinion, but you're giving biblical perspective on what they see around them. It comes from relationship, relationship, relationship. I raised three daughters. One of them's in the room, so I have to be careful. But um, the, uh, the mother of those three children is also in the room, and she gets a lot of credit for this. But she started me very early on the concept of spending time with my daughters. Now, I'm talking methodology now. But there's a biblical principle. It's relationship, relationship, relationship. And I think particularly dads, you need to have a good relationship with your daughters. And it starts, for those of you with younger daughters, it starts well before they hit the teenage years. Well before. That doesn't mean the game's over if you didn't do that, but it's spending time and it's doing what they like to do. Okay? I played football once upon a time. I haven't watched football in decades now. <laughs> okay? None of my daughters were really into it. My goal was, well, and I did spend a lot of time uh, I learned to like running. I hated running. I have two daughters who are runners, actually three. Um, I learned how to hit volleyballs. Um, you, you get in their world. You love what they love. You do what they do. Um, and some of them would, um, you know, curl up in the fetal position if you said, hey, I want to go to the beach with you. That's not what I'm talking about. They don't want to be seen with their dad at the beach. Um, <laughs> Let your wife guide you. Um, let her help you in how you can spend time together doing what they love to do. That builds relationship, and then you make observations of the world around you. Um, Proverbs 1 through 7 um, was very convicting to me many years ago. We started as a family reading through Proverbs together. That is one way to introduce these topics. 
Um, some of you have heard this before. Um, uh, today's the 29th of July. We would have read the 29th chapter of Proverbs today. I, I dreaded the 5th and the 7th of every month. And if you know Proverbs, you know why. Really hard chapters of Proverbs to read to three little girls. But it's in the Bible. And there's, uh, it goes from a limited understanding of what is that about to they get it. Okay, so that's some methodology, but I think the biblical principle is it's relationship, relationship, relationship. My goal always was no one's going to know my kids better than I do for a certain period of time, okay? And my wife was so helpful in raising daughters, yes. Yeah. I like that question. The question is, um, we often tell our kids, in fact, bad company corrupts good morals. And so we control who our, our children spend time with. And when it's extended family, that's the bad company. What do you do? Right. Okay. In our house, uh, biblical truth is biblical truth. Bad company does corrupt good morals. We focus more on the corruption of good morals. In other words, we would talk to our children at a certain age about not allowing other people to affect their behavior. And it was a decision that, to the extent our child was too immature to be around people without it allowing them to affect their behavior, that then we would not spend time. It was, I don't want to say never, because I think we fell in this trap and realized it. You, what you don't want to say is we're not going to spend time with them because they're not saved or they're not as holy as we are or they don't go to church and we do. I would cut all of that away. That's teaching children an arrogance that is not biblical. And you miss the opportunity then to teach your children, we don't walk in this world in fear. We have been given everything we need um, for righteousness in Christ. The, the idea is you get to start teaching your children to interact and spend time with people that they like and love who don't love Jesus and to do so um, in a way that does not affect their behavior. I think that's um, um, how I would answer that. Now, obviously, we've all had family members. I think we all have had. I probably shouldn't say that. There are family members out there who you don't really want them around your children, you have to find a way to do that without your children growing up, pointing fingers at people saying, we don't spend time with them because they're not good enough. You see what I'm saying? So you have to walk that line of teaching humility and their personal responsibility to not allow whatever that influence is to affect their behavior. Yes. And Yeah. Yeah, so career counseling, as an example, 
Um, that's not in the Bible, right? You would, would acknowledge that. Um, so let me uh, assume something here and just throw a hypothetical and see if this is what you're talking about. There are people who want to go to school and get a sociology degree, and they want to incur $200,000 debt to get that sociology degree. And you know they're never going to make more than $20,000 a year. Is that a wise decision? That is not a wise decision. I think that's part of the appeal is you appeal to them um, from the standpoint of wisdom. The other thing you can do um, as they are making those kinds of choices is put them in a place where they're going to feel the consequences of their decisions. It's part of the problem is mom and dad want to shield their kids from consequences. And if, it, um, if you have done that leading up to the college and career decision, then um, you get what we call snowflakes in our culture. So children who don't understand consequences to bad decisions will go out and keep making bad decisions until what? They feel consequences for bad decisions. And you don't want to hurt your children, but sometimes, and this is in Hebrews 12, where it talks about breaking bones or setting bones. Um, there, there is the concept of... Um, my son just broke a bone. There's no way I'm going to let that doctor slide those bones back together and set the bone because it's just going to hurt him too much. Just, just give him some morphine so he doesn't feel pain, and we'll go home. Does that make any sense at all? It makes no sense, and yet that's how many of us parent. So when they get to the place where they're making career decisions, first of all, your preference on their career has about as much influence as what's in the sports page of the LA Times today. It's their call. And you can try and force your preferences on your children in that regard, and there, I would say, is probably a relationship problem. Okay? Now, wisdom, you can teach them wisdom, and you can start thinking now about what's going to happen when they pick a career. Uh, and by the way, I'm not saying no, that nobody should be a sociologist. I, that's, that was an example tied to the debt issue that is so rampant in our culture. Young people running out, signing on to uh, educations that are never going to pay for themselves, and it's just not wise. Um, okay, so does that kind of answer your question? All right. Yes. Yes, I do. You have gone into detail. Um, and uh, it's a great question. Thank you for asking that question. The, the question for the recording is pr biblical principles for loving and caring for children who reject everything you believe, either in what they say or how they live, or, um, well, and I'll just uh, leave that there. The biblical principles I would lead you to is first, parenting is a blessing. It's a gift. It's Christmas every day. And even when your children reject Christ, 
that does not change the truth that God gave you those children to be your children um, for you to love and for you to honor. And that's the second principle is I think you honor your children and you love your children as you would love anybody else in the world. The Bible is very, very clear um, of how we are to love those who do not love Christ. I think of Hebrews 13. Um, I hope I'm thinking of the right thing. Hebrews 13, let the love of the brethren continue. That's believers. This is a loaded verse. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. There's a whole lot rolled up in that, but that talks about how we as Christians are to live our life loving those who are in the church. That's the brethren and loving those who are not in the church. That's the strangers with hospitality. So rejecting a child and separating from a child because they have rejected Christ is not biblical. You would not and would not be called to treat your neighbor that way. And I think sometimes um, uh, non-Christians in our life um, may get better treatment than our own children do because it's so personal. And the, the other principle I would tell you is that the Bible makes very clear, and this is why I said this in the beginning, don't take credit for what God has done and don't blame God for what you haven't done. And if you have done what God has called you to do, then you have done what God's called you to do. And I'm not saying that those aren't hard days, but you need to be encouraged. I think of the um, um, admonition to, to pastors and preachers. I solemnly charge you, I'm reading from 2 Timothy 4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, you're going to do it all exactly how I told you to do it, and they're going to what? They're going to reject it. You're not evaluated on whether they reject it. The evaluation is, did you do the parenting that God called you to do in the way he called you to do it? By the way, all of us look back and we say what? No, we didn't. We're not perfect parents. But there is, there is grace. And as you look back, and this is good, this is why this is a good question. This is part of preparing for your children to leave your home. They will leave your authority. They will go their own way. I always liken it to the days when I coached football. We would take a bunch of young men who had never worn pads before in about late July, early August, back in those days. And we would put pads on them and try and teach them how to play the game of football. And on that first Friday night, you know what happens. We have to stop at the chalk line, and there goes 11 young men who are either going to really embarrass you or they're going to show that they were paying attention when you were trying to teach them how to play the game of football. That is such a picture of parenting. The day's coming when you have to stop at the chalk line. Um, and they're going to go out, and I, I, it is a practical reality that depending on their life choices, you might be really sad, you might be grieved, you might even be embarrassed. Um, you need to go back, in that case, to Proverbs 1, where it says those are their choices. And the Lord knows that you did what you were called to do. The Lord honors that. We may not ever see that the way we want to see that, but then there's 
um, the reminder that God is God and we are not. And he loves our children um, more than we do. And going on in 2 Timothy 4, um, it says, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Do what you're supposed to do as a parent, which once they leave your home, you're to honor them and you're to love them. First John is a great um, book to read through, especially in the context of my children, who you, who you might not like all the time. You might not like all the choices they make all the time. Um, love them. Be their biggest cheerleader. Not in their sin, but as their parent. Okay? Hope that's helpful. I know it's not... What's that? Yeah, no, the, the, there is freedom because the Bible doesn't define that. I think there's uh, principles. The hospitality that it talks about in Hebrews 13 is important. I don't think you throw your child out of the relationship and out of your home for rejecting Christ. And, and think about that. Some of your children will come home and say they pray, prayed the prayer, and really what they're doing is they think they're obeying you and honoring you. Don't make salvation an issue of obedience in your home. That's not what it is. In other words, your children don't come to Christ out of obedience to you. They come to Christ because they recognize they need a Savior. And if their motivation is to obey you, that, they're going to figure that out someday. Which is why in youth ministry, we've, we've always been concerned with um, parents who tell us, don't say that to my child because they prayed the prayer. I was there when they prayed the prayer. They're saved. Don't ever say anything to make them question whether they're saved because they prayed the prayer. It's very, very dangerous. The Bible says that your children are to examine their faith. In the same way, the Bible says you and I are to examine our faith. Okay? So the practical, how do you love them? It's just such a broad topic that it's probably an hour and a half, but First John is a great book to go through, and you just replace... The object of your love for human beings, replace that with my child. And that is defining how you should love your children. And you should honor your, um, your children. That's honor all men in 1 Peter 2.17. What does that mean? That means you give them preference. You let them make decisions. You, let, you, you do what they want to do. You, you, uh, um, that's what honor is. It's a submission and a, uh, and a lifting up of their preferences and what they want. Not sin. Okay. Okay. Provoke, uh, the question is provoking, exasperating your children or provoking them to anger. I, I reference one way, and that is constantly moving the goalposts. That you've established a rule in your home, and they're satisfying that rule, and all of a sudden you're telling them there's something different. Um, another way is for mom and dad to be on different pages. Um, and they start very young. Your kids are very smart, and I'll prove it to you. How many times have they gotten an answer from mom, and they run to dad, and dad says, yeah, that's okay. Who do they go to from then on to get permission? Dad. Okay, that just proves your children are smart. That is exasperating. Um, Another way to exasperate your children is to tell them um, how to act and then act differently yourself. It's called hypocrisy. 
Hypocrisy is extraordinarily exasperating to children. And I could go on with other examples, but I'm just going to say this. Some of you can look to your own parents and think about how they exasperated you. Don't repeat it with your own children. But I think moving standards, different standards, and hypocrisy are the three that come to my mind on how you exasperate your children. If they are frustrated with um, biblical truth, um, their argument is with the word of God and, and God, not with you. Um, another one more, um, at some point with your children, teaching them things they're not asking can also be exasperating. And, and this is a hard one. There is a transition where, um, you, you, when they're five years old, you need to tell them what they need to know, whether they want to know it or they don't. When they're 15, they're getting pretty close to the place where you can keep doing that, but that could be exasperating. What you want to do is create the situation where they are asking the right questions and you're answering them. And, and uh, exasperation can be every time they sit down with dad, they're going to get a download of dad's opinions on everything. In the world, in their life, um, and some of you know this from your own experience, and that's why I'm saying think back to your own experience. What was exasperating to you? I'm sure that was exasperating to my daughters on occasion because I always have an opinion. Um, and I'm not celebrating sin, but I'm saying none of us are perfect. Okay? Yes? Yeah, great question. Um, what's the next step? How do you build that trust so that they do come to you? Such a good question. Do we have half an hour? Uh, that is such a, okay. First of all, um, and I learned this from my wife, watching her do this. You tell them things early on, and you tell them what to expect. When you get to this age, this is going to happen. And when this happens, this is, um, we'll have a conversation. And when they get to that age, something happened, and they had a conversation. In other words, you use the, your wisdom to help your, not to be a, um, um, you know, making predictions, but to tell them what's coming, and then when it comes, that builds trust that, hey, mom and dad actually know what they're talking about. Second thing I would tell you um, is relationship, relationship, relationship. Put down the TV uh, remote and go spend time with your children. And... You know, some people think this gets overplayed a lot, but if you don't know what your children's interests are, uh, you're missing out. I used to date my daughters. One of my daughters, we got this thing going where we love to go on car lots and look at new cars. <laughs> That's what we would do. We'd go to dinner and go to a new car lot. Did we ever buy a car? No. <laughs> it was kind of fun to go and test drive cars. That became our thing. Do you think we can get a car to test drive. Silly, right? But that was something unique between me and that one daughter. Um, and it, that's what you want to do with your kids. I used to go to my kids' school um, and bring lunch. And then it became a thing where I had to bring lunch for them and all their friends. Um, <laughs> and it became such a big deal that I got told by the school district we couldn't do that anymore. 
because it was so disruptive. Um, have fun. Parenting is fun. Um, the relationship with uh, your children should be such that a conversation um, is natural. The, the third thing I would tell you is, uh, going back to it again, Proverbs 1 through 7 is the model. Walk through life with them and make observations about the world around you, or even more importantly, listen to them make observations about life. Okay? You go uh, down to Hollywood, there, believe me, there's plenty of things to see for them um, to observe. Don't parent out of fear. Don't hide your children from reality. Let them see reality. Listen to them. React to reality. And when they say something dumb, don't jump them. Sometimes wait a day or two. Don't even respond to that crazy observation they made. Come back to it a day or two later from a completely different direction and have a conversation. I hope that's helpful. We have to go or they're... They're uh, gonna. Apparently, somebody really good is here next hour, and they're trying to get in. Let me let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the gift and the reward and the blessing that is parenting. Lord, it is indeed Christmas every day, and we don't give you enough praise and worship and glory for that. Thank you for our children, Lord. It is difficult at times. I pray for those here today who are struggling with children who are not walking with you. Give them special measure of grace. Lord, encourage their hearts um, about the things that they are doing right, that they have done right. Lord, drive um, them to their knees, uh, deepen and strengthen their love for their children. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would raise a generation that honors you to your glory in Christ's name. Amen.